Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Hear now God's word. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the word of the Lord. When you get at the heart of the faith of Christianity, what it really is is applying principles of truth that God has taught us as humans over time about who God is, who we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to one another, and taking those principles and applying it to the time and the age and the things that we find around us in our lives. And so our our reason why we come Sunday mornings and we worship together and then we hear somebody stand up here and pontificate for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, uh, is because we're trying to get at the heart of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be uh, uh, created in the image of God and to love God and to love others? And and that's what we do week in and week out. And so it's um, kind of a tricky thing that we've been looking at these last two weeks is how do we apply those principles that we learn in scripture to the technology that we have today, particularly our online selves as we go on Facebook or on Snapchat or on Instagram or on Twitter or on whatever other name of any other platform we have. How does our Christian faith inform our lives in those realms today? And so we've looked at a couple different things. The first week, we explored creation of humanity itself, and we saw that God created man and woman for a purpose, that there was a, an idea of this mutuality, of this, this community that was inbuilt into our nature as humans. We desire to be social. We desire to be communal, and that's just part of our nature. Um, and so in, throughout all of time, technology has created different ways in which we interact, but we've always used those tools that have come into our hands in some way or another to be social, to interact. And so it wasn't a surprise to us that first week when we began to explore that idea that in the modern world, as we sit in front of computers and we type away all day long, and as we interact online, that we began to use the tools of the internet and the virtual world for social means. And so we created an entire subset, a whole category of the online world that we call social media, where the express purpose is to connect us to one another. And so that's not a surprise. We've done that through all of human history. 
And so it wasn't new or it isn't anything strange, but it is something that we have to learn how to use in a healthy way. And so last week we began to look about, look at how we could use it in healthy ways. And we looked last week at the idea that not only is human, humanity created to be communal, but that we are created to strengthen one another. We are created in each individual unique way to be better as a whole unit than to be individual and apart from one another. And so we looked at the analogy that was in Ecclesiastes, a cord of three strands, and in Paul's writing in his letter to the church in Corinth, um, a body made of many different parts. And we saw that we as human beings strengthen one another when we come together and we learn from one another and we fill in for each other as each of us has different strengths that works together towards the goal better than any of us could do on our own. So this week, we continue in this journey. This week, we look, what is our motive? Oh, if my mic doesn't just like rip off of my head. Where is my mic? Somewhere. I should just yell. But then they wouldn't hear us online. All right, let me see if I can find my mic pack now. Put it in my pocket. Am I still on? Test, one, two, three. Test, there we go. See, modern day doesn't solve all the problems, right? <laughs> Gravity still exists. And if you get a little bit of pudge from the holidays around your midsection, it pops the mic pack off. So we human beings are created to interact with one another, but what is the motive? What is the motive of our interaction? What should be our standpoint? And so this morning we're going to look specifically at the concept that I believe God created humans to act selflessly. That we were designed to not think of ourselves primarily and not think of ourselves within our, in, in our actions or our interactions, but we were designed to think of who first? God first, and then who before ourselves? Others, right? So all these actions are actions that are not within or pointing to us, but rather are pointing outward. We're going to look at that. So let's look at our scripture today and what it tells us about God. Because in the beginning, if we look at the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God says to himself, supposedly, let us create humanity in our image. Let us, let us create them. Man and woman, let us create them in our image. And so if we understand that about ourselves, that we are created in the image of God, then that means that knowing something about God and God's nature tells us something about us and our nature. Because we're supposed to be reflections of God as his stewards in this material creation. And so as we learn more about who God is, we begin to learn more about ourselves. Well, let's think about what God's impetus and motive was in creation. If God is the greatest of all beings, perfectly content and satisfied and happy within his own being, could there have been any selfish motive in his creating of humanity? No. No, because a selfish motive would in some way require that he had some kind of need that he was going to get out of creation. 
And this is not what the story of Scripture tells us. This is not what Genesis chapter 1 tells us. This is not what Genesis chapter 2 tells us. This isn't what other creation accounts that you can see in the Psalms and Isaiah tell us about the creation of humanity. It seems that God's motive in the creation of humanity and all of creation was always selfless. That he would be sharing with creation out of his abundance, out of God's abundance of what makes God, God. And so God was making others to share in his beauty and his wonder and his creativity and his goodness. And so his motive within creation itself is a selfless motive. Let us make humanity in our own image. Why? Why? So that we might share and partake and what God is and what God has been for all eternity. And so that we might be reflections of God here in this physical realm, showing the rest of the creation God's nature and who God is. And so God's motive within creation is selfless right there. And then if we look at our passage today in Philippians, we see that God's motive in salvation is selfless, right? This passage in Philippians is one of my favorite in all of Scripture for several reasons. One, I think it's so rich and dense. I could preach, I think, five years' worth of sermons off of this one text. Should I do that? Someone said, sure, I'm taking you up on it. Actually, in reality, every sermon you hear me preach up here in some way connects to this passage in Philippians chapter 2 because it is at the heart of what I believe the entire message of Scripture preaches. And I think it's a beautiful summary by Paul, but here's the, here's the clincher. It probably wasn't written by Paul. Now, I believe that the letter to the church in Philippi was fully written by Paul sometime in the late 50s after his missionary journey, which he visits the town of Philippi. But this particular passage is interesting. As scholars have studied this over the years, they've recognized that the vocabulary, that the meter, that everything about the text as he begins to go in talking about the work of Jesus, the, the part where it begins to flip to, and though he was in the very form God, he he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or held, but he emptied himself, becoming found in the very image of a servant. That, that text, when it begins to flow into that, it's very poetic. And that it's not really natural to Paul's voice, to Paul's vocabulary. And so the assumption of scholars has been that this is a poem that predates Pauline theology. That this is a poem that the early church, the apostles created to teach new Christians about what it means to follow after this one Jesus of Nazareth. Do you guys get how amazing this is? There's scholars all over the world arguing about whether or not what gospel goes first and which gospel goes second. Is, is the gospel of Mark first? Because the gospel of Mark is the least supernatural and the least divine. And so we're going to place that one first. Hooey. All of that is hooey. This scripture, this scripture was written before all of the gospels. This scripture was written before all of the gospels. When Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And this text predates Paul in all likelihood and was taught to him as like a catechism of what it meant to follow after Jesus. 
And yet this scripture is probably one of the most blatant in calling Jesus God of all the scripture we have in the New Testament. And so it's in this scripture we learn something about who God is. And at the heart of it, at the heart of it, God cares so much for creation that he empties himself and becomes one of us, a servant Becoming obedient in absolute perfection to the will of the Father, that he was willing to even go to the point of death. And then it highlights it even death on a cross, the worst kind of death. And this should blow our minds. This should just completely enrapture us in the love and selflessness of God. That God was willing to become one of us, allow himself to become subjected to our corrupt justice system, be judged by it, be put to death in one of the most heinous ways that history has conceived of, all to show us how much he loves us and to redeem us from our own rebellion so that we might be entered back into a relationship with him as we were created to be in the beginning. What an amazing thought process that God is so selfless, God is so giving, God is so compassionate that this would be what God's behavior is. But there's another thing that the incarnation shows us. And it's a doctrine that the church has described over the years as the Trinity. And it is a mysterious doctrine. It's a doctrine that's really difficult to understand. And I've preached sermons on it here. I've taught confirmation classes. And there's sermons you can go back and listen to. And there's a video that I have that's an hour of me talking about the Trinity. If you want it, email me. I'll send you the link. But the idea of the Trinity itself teaches us something about the nature of God. I think that each of us has a concept in our mind of an old man sitting on top of a cloud and maybe, maybe or maybe not, he's like stroking a harp, right? He's got a big white beard and he looks kind of very fatherly or grandfatherly, right? This is the concept we tend to think of when we think of God. And yet that's drastically not what scripture says. Scripture reflects God as three in one, one being, one substance, one will, And yet three persons, which we've looked at in the past, distinctly means ways of relationship, three relationships within the one Godhead. And so this this icon I've shown before is called Rublev's Trinity. And it's actually a depiction of the three angels who show up to Abraham's house right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you guys remember that story? And these three angels in this picture are depicted as as some kind of a forerunner, some kind of a pre- um, you know, example of the Trinity. And in this image, there's some significant imagery that is showing us something about what the Trinity means. Notice, all of them have their heads tilted, right? Do you notice that? Can you guess why? Not enough room. I had to crop that picture and they were like, all right, Chris, fit our heads in the crop. Where are their heads tilted? No, toward one another. 
Think about the imagery of deferring one to the other. And if you were to somehow depict this with two human beings sitting next to one another, they would tilt their heads to one another. That this tilting of the head towards the other is a deferral of oneself to the other. And so this is an image of what we find in the scriptures. That God, being father, begets the son eternally. And the father and the son send the spirit. And the spirit reveals to us the Father and the Son. Now, if you were to point with action, if you were any of those three beings, where would you point the action is going in each of those descriptions? Out. Correct? The Father's begetting the Son, giving something to the Son, sending the Son. The Son and the Father are sending the Spirit to the church, and the the Spirit is revealing the Father and Son. Actions all in deference to one another. This is an amazing thing because if God is, a, is a, what they would call a monad, a single individual just with no community as a part of his existence at all, then that means that his creation of humanity is out of a selfish need to get community. But if we truly are created in the image of God and we are communal and social, then that means that God is communal. That God is by nature social. That means in all eternity, God exists as community. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most amazing things, and it's literally, as I've studied Christianity, the doctrine that has kept me Christian. Because it's the only thing that I think distinguishes our experiences as humans in a significant way that makes sense to my reality being social over every other religion. No other religion does this. One God, fully community for all eternity. And that means that our community is a reflection of his community. We learn something about God in the interaction of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We learn that we are created in the image of God. That We, as human beings, are communal. Now, as we look at the action of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all you can say is that the arrows are pointing out that they are selfless actions, right? They're actions toward one another for the glory of the other. And so if we're created in the image of God, if we truly are the imago Dei, as the Latin would say, then we ourselves are created to be selfless. We are created to act in accordance with what is good for the other, And not think necessarily about what is good for us. That doesn't mean we don't do things that are good for us. Because then we would stop existing, right? It's that we act in preferential treatment to the other and their needs. There's this dichotomy in the Gospels. One, Matthew 7, 12. You guys know this. What is this this law called? The golden rule. Let's read it together. In everything... Do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Right? And this is response as Jesus is giving a response to a lawyer who's asking what he needs to do, right? And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And the second is like it, do unto others as you would have done unto you. For this is the encapsulation of the entire law and the prophets. Notice the action of these two laws. 
One is towards the Father, loving him, right? One is towards one another, loving one another selflessly. Now, Jesus amps this up. Jesus does not just sit in, on his laurels with the golden rule. Jesus creates what a lot of times is called the platinum rule, and it's in the Gospel of John. Okay, and what does he say? He says this in John 13, I give you a new commandment. Church, let's read this together. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Now, did Jesus love us as he wishes he would be loved? He went a step beyond that, right? He loved us greater than he loved himself. He thought of us before he thought of himself. He became obedient even to the point of even death on a... And so there's an extension of the golden rule. It's, it's brought to a deeper level of restoring us to how we were supposed to be in the garden of selfless love towards one another. And so Paul in Philippians, when he is saying, be of the same mind, think like Jesus Christ, he's encouraging them to recapture what it really means to be human. How many of you have ever heard people say this before? I'm only human. Right? And usually that's covering over some kind of selfishness. But Jesus says, no, to be human is to be selfless because it's an image and a reflection of me and the Father and the Spirit, a selfless reality in which we act only for one another. And that's how you're to act. That's what it means to be human. And let me show you. And then he does it in the person of Jesus. Let me give you an illustration. Now, these are my terrible drawings. I used to have really nice logos for these because I used to teach this to youth all the time. This is the new man, or actually the old, old man. This is before sin. Our, our behavior, our actions are all in arrows, represented in arrows going out from ourselves, right? That everything we do would be motivated for the, to be for the benefit of those who are not us. God and each other and creation. And you could see this in Genesis chapter 2. When God creates Adam, he gives him commands. And all of his commands are to do what? Take care of the earth. Cultivate it. Make it fruitful. Multiply. You know, name all the animals. He sends him with a mission that is inherently selfless. But something happens. And we choose to eat from a tree. And in that eating of the tree, we turn things around. Now, some of us have this idea, and I think I've had this idea in the past, of that something magically happened when we ate of the tree, we actually gained real knowledge. But what I think is it's an illustration of human beings choosing their own way, selfish, over God's way, selfless. Choosing to define what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what is bad by my perceptions and by my thoughts. And so what it essentially does is it flips those arrows. It flips those arrows. There are, our actions become about self and about doing for me over and above doing the, for those around me. How many of you see the common sense of this at all? I'm seeing if I make sense. 
How many of you have felt for yourself that in your own motivations that it bugs you that you keep doing things selfishly over and over again? I'm raising my hand, so yeah. Right? It's in our sin nature as we've rebelled against God to turn those arrows inward and to be concerned more with self than we are with others. And yet regularly we recognize and we know that if we could somehow flip those arrows the other way and all of humanity would start acting not in selfishness but in selflessness, would all the world's problems go away? Yeah. Instantly. Right? Billionaires would start giving all their money to those who didn't have enough so that they can be able to exist. We'd start farming and making food, not just so that we can hoard it in one location in the earth, but that we could send it all over the place so that everyone might have food to eat. We would make sure that everybody has clean water. Right? If we were acting in selfless love towards others, we would solve all the world's problems instantly. But we have this problem called sin where we've turned those arrows inward, where we have begun to act selfish. And yet Jesus tells us that he's come to restore the old way, to create in us a new human, human being, a humanity 2.0, that he's the forerunner for. And that him and his behavior is an example to us of how we are to act as his disciples. What does he say to you? If you wish to come after me, finish it. Take up your cross and follow me. What do you think take up your cross means? It means think less of the consequences to yourself and how much pain it's going to be for you to serve others and just serve others no matter the cost so that others would be loved, others would be fulfilled, others would be built up, others would be served with your gifts and your strengths. All of this, what does it have to do with social media? You're all thinking, what the heck is Chris talking about? Well, here's my question. Is your use of social media for selfless purpose? I don't know about you, but when I find myself using social media kind of compulsively, it's very often how many likes am I getting, right? How many people reacted to my post? Did people like my blog? Let me go and let's see if they reacted to it, if they thumbs up it, if they, you know, shared it with other people. Let me look at the analytics and find out how many people clicked through, how long they spent on my page reading my blog. Oh, only a minute? They couldn't have read my whole blog in a minute. Dang it, people didn't like my blog, right? All of this is serving whose ego? Me! There's an inherent problem in how I'm approaching these tools, because they're all in the service of the grandiose me. Imagine a world where we use social media instead to serve and to love others the way that Jesus did. What might our actions online look like? Would there be as many arguments over politics on Facebook where people defriend each other and never see each other again? No, probably not, right? Would there be as many hateful words and comments made towards people just showing the best that they can, they can give playing the flute? Oh, you're terrible. Would we do that kind of stuff? No. Right? Would we post just looking to see get, getting gratification and satisfaction that others somehow validate our lives by their thumbs up click that they give? No. We would post to share that others might be blessed or, or helped or encouraged with that post. 
So you got to use this question as, as a little bit of a way of analyzing your own behavior online. Is your use of social media for selfless purposes? Second question, do we act in selflessness when we're interacting online? So not just do we have a motive of selflessness that we, we, when we go to online purposes or online tools, but do we act in selflessness? Do we use these tools for the purpose of building others up and encouraging others towards good and service and love of God and of other people? How are we actually using the tools? Not just our motives, but what are the outcomes to how we use the tools? We would think through these things and we would ask these questions of ourselves if we really were concerned about being like Christ, picking up our cross and following him into the virtual world, correct? These are important things for us to think about. And I want to say this again to those who say, I don't have a computer. So what? These principles still apply to you. Whether you go online or you don't, these principles still apply to you. Is your life about service of those who are around you? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends, your church family? Do you think of ways in which you can be service to others? Or when somebody brings a child into our, our worship space and, is, and he's beautiful and cute and we should be loving him like crazy, when he makes a little bit of noise, are you like, Arr! how dare you bring that noisy child into our sanctuary? How do we act? Or do we say, hey, how can I love him this morning? How can I love this child this morning? How can I love this family? Maybe you think of the young families in our church whose lives are incredibly busy and husbands and wives never get to connect because they're so busy with their children's lives and you might offer to them, not me, forget me. I get lots of support from you guys. I'm talking about other families. You might offer to them to watch their kids for a night so they can go out and remember why they're married, right? So if you don't have a computer and you're, you're sitting here thinking, how does this apply to me? Start thinking about others before you think about yourself and think of how you can serve them with the gifts and blessings God's given to you so that they can be encouraged, so that they can be supported, so that they can be the best human that they can be. This is what God calls us to be as human. This is what it means to be human. And this is how we're supposed to interact as Social beings created in the image of God. Amen. Very complicated sermon. Sorry. Go back and listen to it again. But it's simple. Think less about yourself. Think more about how you can love God. And think more about how in his name you can love those around you. Very simple. So this week, my charge is this. Take your phone out. Set an alarm that goes off every single hour. And have that alarm be something like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that every single hour of the day, you get a reminder of where your action and activity is to point towards God and in loving others in his name. So that you begin to build a habit of thinking in a selfless way towards the world around you. So that you might be the image of God for those you come in contact with.